Genesis chapter 9, if you want to open up your Bibles. Genesis chapter 9, get back into the text. Last week we had some fun looking at geology and fossils and scientific data, a little bit of a break from the norm, uh, just to look at the evidence of the flood. Uh, that's always exciting information to know that what we believe is rational, it has evidence, it's not just blind faith. Amen? Amen. Just curious, did anyone ever see the, the Noah movie that came out recently, a while back? Noah? I'm not the only one that had that misfortune, am I? No? Okay. I, I, yeah, something like that. I think my face was permanently disfigured for about two weeks after watching that. I was just like, the whole time, uh, every, uh, every five minutes, I was just like, what? The only thing that they had right was there's a guy named Noah and there was a lot of water. I think that's about, I think that's about it. Is this, uh, I'm getting signaled here. Is that okay? Okay. All right. Yeah, no, that, that, that movie, uh, yeah, like Adam mentioned before, don't go to Hollywood for uh, uh, biblical accuracy. You will be led astray. So we're going to pick up in chapter 9 here, begin the next chapter really in this uh, uh, story of humankind, the story of, of, of history unfolding here, and we're moving into now the post-flood world. So we're coming close to the end of the first section of Genesis. We talked about how this first section up through chapter 11 is that primeval period, that sort of prehistory period where things really start out uh, following the family line of Ab- Abraham in, in chapter 12 and we kind of start a whole new section in Genesis 12. So we're c- coming close to wrapping up sort of the setting of the stage, so to speak, of, of this world stage of God's plan of redemption. So after... 120 years of preparation and spending about 370 days on a boat with a bunch of stinky animals, uh, he finally gets to start fresh. I can only imagine how they must have kissed the ground when they left that ark. Uh, I can't even imagine. You know, I uh, took uh, my first cruise uh, a year ago, January, uh, first time going on a cruise. Anybody been on a cruise? Big boat, you know? Um, um, yes, I know we've got some major cruisers here, they're uh, veterans, but I was, it, was, it was my first time experiencing that, and I only went for, I think, a little a short little three-day thing, but um, I got a brief taste of the whole land legs thing, you know, where you're not used to being in the ocean, and just when you get used to it, then you, then you leave, and it was, it was an interesting sensation, and it, but it kind of made me think of what it must have been like, having been on a boat that long for Noah's family, walking off and stepping on stable ground. Uh, I can't imagine. Uh, they were probably looking like drunken sailors for a while, just getting used to something that wasn't moving. Um, man, what a journey that they had come through. And it really is just a sim- symbol of a, a resurrection, a new beginning. Exiting that ark It's kind of like exiting the tomb and uh, starting a new life and starting a new chapter in God's plan of redemption. So some of the themes we're going to encounter here in this chapter uh, are, are the whole theme, really, of a fresh start. And God's going to give them a fresh command, some fresh commission, a few little changes to some things he said before. And we're going to see God's promise, one of God's uh, most notable promises that he gives. And then we're also going to see that, sadly, sin is still on the scene. Sin is not done away with yet. Judgment has fallen, 
but not complete and perfect judgment. It's just a picture of what's coming, but unfortunately we're going to get a very stark reminder that sin is still alive and kicking, unfortunately. But why don't we go ahead and pray before we enter into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your Word. We thank you for your faithfulness and that your promises are faithful and true, that we can count on them, that they are as good as done. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to us as Alex prayed, by your word and by your spirit. Lord, we know it's your desire that we would know you more. Lord, that we would fulfill your plan and purpose for us while we're here on this earth, however long that may be, be it one more day or living out a natural life. Lord, we just want to be faithful. We want to be counted worthy and uh, found faithful of uh, servants and stewards of yours. And, and so we ask your blessing on your word as we study it. Lord, we're excited to see what you have for us tonight. And we just give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so picking up in Genesis 9, verse 1, let's go ahead and read and get started. It says, So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that moves on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea, for they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Okay, so first of all, we're seeing we're no longer strictly vegetarians. God makes it pretty clear burgers are okay. We can go fishing and enjoy a good filet. It's all right. Uh, God made it clear here that he actually officially, so he kind of, he's, he's changed now from what was initially given back in Genesis 1, where he said, see, I may have every green herb, every plant for food, I've given it to you. He's now saying, no, the animals are fair game too now. If you can catch it and kill it, you can eat it. So, you know, he gives, he gives this kind of expansion now of, of what's available and what we're given dominion over for this purpose uh, here in chapter 9. You know, um, and it's interesting to see how that is, that is lived out, we see it still today, that humans are clearly different than the animal kingdom. And there is that natural inherent fear of humans because of how God has set this up. But this is a repeated command, and I think because it's repeated, as we've seen before in Scripture, it's worth noting, what, why does God reemphasize that they are to have dominion, that they're to go out and be fruitful and multiply? Well, the word dominion, we know, means to rule. It means uh, to basically set up rulership or governance over a land or, or, or over a region. Um, Genesis 1.28, to kind of recap, says, Then God blessed them. This is right after having said that he created man and woman in his image. And he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. <clears throat> Excuse me. And fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves over the earth. So, God is reemphasizing this, this commission and this command to, to his children, to his people. He's saying, go out, subdue, have dominion, be fruitful, multiply. In other words, uh, you know, bring things into subjection, create order. And uh, <clears throat> these words really indicate going out and, and sort of being on conquest in a sense. But it's really important, first of all, to put these things uh, into perspective and into uh, context. The word subdue it's interesting, the word subdue in the Hebrew, Hebrew word is actually kibosh. So I guess that's where we get that expression to put the kibosh on something. It's actually the Hebrew word for subdue. Interesting. But it means to bring into bondage or to keep under, to bring into subjection, 
means to conquer. So again, we've taken into context here, in both cases in Genesis 1 and here, he starts off by saying, be fruitful and multiply. So what is, what is God really saying here? Are we supposed to just go out and recklessly uh, consume the earth? No, clearly not. We're, we're told to be good stewards. We're told to be fruitful and multiply. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's just it carries with it, obviously, the connotation of a gardener who's tending to something. Like, just like my apple tree that I have. I have a couple apple trees. I just pruned them recently. One of them brought forth a pretty good amount of apples this last season. The other one didn't, I think, had one or two. Uh, but when I, I found that when I'm faithful to remember to prune them and tend to them, it turns out they actually are much more fruitful. Uh, same thing with our garden. And that is, that is the commission here. And so in, in this command to go out and exercise dominion and rule uh, and to go out uh, and, and, uh, and really explore and, and discover the world and, and set up this dominion, it's in light of not being a reckless consumer of creation, as, as some would think, but it's really to be a good steward over it, that we are to take hold of it. We're not just simply to coexist, but we are to be proactive. And this is something that I think in some ways we've lost sight of. And there's two aspects of this dominion covered here in this chapter. We're going to get to the, one of them later. But the first one is here seen to rule over creation itself. And the second one, he's starting to set up the foundation for civil governance, for government, for authority. And we're going to see that in a minute. But this dominion over creation, this, there's, there's something called dominion theology. You may have heard of it. Um, and it's, it basically it stems from these verses in Genesis that talk about how we as Christians are essentially to be proactive in going out and having, exercising that dominion. In other words, going and exploring and discovering and, and, and really uh, doing everything in God's name. Um, and if I could contrast it with anything, it would be, uh, I guess, National Geographic would be a good contrast. And it's interesting if you read about the roots of National Geographic, their, their mission, their, their conquest was to go out into all the world and do kind of the opposite, to sort of counteract Christian culture and really paint this godless picture of the world through, through photography and through uh, fascinating articles. Uh, that was, that's their mission, really, is to, is to basically uh, paint this picture of us being merely part of the animal kingdom and, and, and sort of the effects of, of, of everything around the earth from a godless point of view. And there was once this ministry um, that I had heard of, um, and no, I don't think it exists any longer, but it was called the Hazardous Journey Society. Anybody ever heard of, heard of that? The Hazardous Journey Society, I don't think exists anymore, but it was actually founded by this Christian guy. And uh, the purpose of it was this very thing, really with the premise of, you know, God has called us to go out and to explore and to research and to discover what he would have for us in all creation. And in doing that, we can, we can then spread the message and we can put out these same things, kind of like what National Geographic does, but in, we, can, we can show the world what God has done, his glory and his magnificence in, in, in all creation. And so they would go on these journeys to all these uh, far reaches of the earth, and they would do video documentary, and they would publish articles, and they would raise up and train other people to go, and, and they would teach them how to study cultures and creation. And uh, it was really kind of a cool idea. And it's called the Hazardous Journey Society, because that's what they would do. I mean, they would really go on these hazardous journeys and, and document uh, their adventures. And it was based on these verses, and it was the idea of raising up leadership and men uh, to 
to really seek to exercise this dominion over creation and to use it as a vehicle for promoting the glory of God, the hand of God in all things, and being a good steward of all of it, to really go out and seek to actively be a good steward of all of it. It's kind of an interesting ministry. I don't think it's around anymore, but it sounded like something I'd like to participate in. Uh, it'd be a lot of fun. But moving on, it says in Genesis 9, verse 4, but you shall not eat the but you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And so we see that blood is forbidden. Digestion of blood is prohibited for everyone. What's interesting is we also see this repeated in Acts 15, 29. For those who are taking notes, that's Acts 15, 29. And it says, for this is a letter, this is part of a letter that was written by a group of the apostles and early church founders addressing the issue of what do Gentiles uh, what, are, what should be required of Gentiles? There's this whole controversy over, should we enforce the law on the Gentiles? Should we require them to be circumcised? Should we make them do all these things that us Jews had to do? Should we sort of basically make it Jesus plus the law? And they're wrestling with that and putting that issue to rest. And they wrote this letter that Paul and Barnabas and some of the other church founders carried and distributed to the churches. And part of that letter, this is an interesting part of that letter because it mentions this, mentions this mandate, this command here in Genesis 9.4. And it says, For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, or from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you do well. Farewell. And that's the, that's the kind of capstone of the letter. And it's interesting that he mentions that this, this very command to not partake in blood, because in that, in blood is considered... Uh, our life, uh, the lifeblood. It's that thing that delivers oxygen to the body. It's, you know, I don't think there's any, necessarily any mystical or magical thing being said here. It's just something that God has commanded that we're not to partake in. And it's also reiterated in Acts by some of the early church founders, by Paul and Barnabas and them. But you can imagine understanding this command. It was alive and well and well known in Jesus' time, in the early church time. You can imagine now knowing this command uh, the shock of the people when Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. That was a direct attack on, on a, that was a direct, it appeared to be this direct affront to a clear command of God, one that they held very high. Uh, it was that whole, um, you know, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel thing. They would literally try, if they accidentally sucked in a bug while they're running down the road, they would try and cough it up for this very reason. It was this command that they were trying to avoid eating, the, you know, eating or digesting blood. So it was a big deal. And Jesus you know, kind of shook them to their core in what they believed and really more going after the reason why they believe what they believe uh, and the heart behind it, obviously, than the letter of the law. But you can imagine their shock when Jesus pointed that out. It was because of this command. It says, For surely the lifeblood, verse 5, I will demand, in the lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. From the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as, it is, and as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth, multiply in it. So he sets something up here as well. He sets up capital punishment. He says, listen, a life will be required 
for, for committing murder, for taking a life, a life will be required. And he sets up the standard here for human government, government or self-governance in exacting judgment. He says in verse 6, that by man his blood shall be shed. In other words, God's kind of delegating some judgment to, to humankind. He's delegating uh, some judging and some, and some, uh, some consequences and, and things to them that they are supposed to carry out. And so he's sort of going, you know, I'm not going to wipe out mankind anymore directly. Um, I'm, I'm starting to set up and lay the foundation for human governance, human, human authority, and those things that we now see, obviously, in a full degree today. But here we see the premise of what we read about in the New Testament, of how we are to honor and respect authority. Amen? We are supposed to honor and respect authority, recognizing it's from who? It's from God. And we see the foundation of that here where God is delegating certain judgment, some of the most severe judgment, to man to carry out. It says, by man his blood shall be shed. Jesus himself said in John 19, when speaking to Pilate, Pilate says to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? And what did Jesus answer? He said, you would have no power at all against me unless it was given to you from who? From above, from God, from God himself. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So Jesus himself reinforces this foundational principle that was laid down right here in Genesis 9, that certain authority has been granted to man, and that authority has been given by God. And the, the, the setting up of government, of exacting justice, of, of doing some of these things, is a God-ordained system. And there's a lot more detail, obviously, that is going to be spelled out later on in Scripture. You know, it's interesting because just this last week I was having a conversation with a gentleman I do business with down in Redlands, and he's a Christian, but he made a passing comment one day, um, essentially saying, uh, you know, as a Christian, we really don't have to worry about following man's laws. And it was like, what? Run that by me again? And he was actually, I think, referring to the speed limit. So Adam, I know you would have appreciated this. But he was saying something about driving and something like that, and he was saying something about how really we answer to a higher power, and therefore we don't really have to uh, be subject to these whole man's laws, as he put it. I'm like, where do you get that from? That, you're missing a link somewhere in your logical connection. And clearly, Scripture teaches something very different. And it isn't just later on in Scripture. It's right here in the beginning in Genesis. God commands that. There are, is to be authority, and there are to be those who have the authority to exact justice, and we are to honor that, and Scripture teaches that clearly. But I thought it was interesting that he, he said that. Uh, kind of caught me off guard, and, and here I was just actually preparing this study, so I had plenty I could say to him. You know, there's also an important contrast being drawn here. You notice that he just got done telling us we can have burgers and fillets, and if we can catch it, we can eat it type of a thing. And then he talks about what happens if you kill a human being. Do you see a little bit of a contrast there? What's the consequence for, for killing a cow and eating a burger? Good on you. What's the consequence for killing a human? Death. I think a point is being made here. There's a reason that these two things are sandwiched together, I think. And, and the point he's making is, you know, we are not merely more further along evolved animals. 
We are not just another uh, animal creation of God's. We have a very distinct and special position before God. We've been a, we are a special creation. There's a very distinct difference made between the animal kingdom and humans. And again, this is contrary to what we would be taught in society today, isn't it? It's contrary to what they're teaching in our schools. Uh, you know, we see all of these activists and these people who really place animals and humans on the same plane. Many of them actually put animals above humans, don't they? And would willingly see humans die for the sake of saving uh, some endangered, you know, gnat or frog or something like that. And it's kind of crazy. And, and their utterly godless perspective in how they've been trained in our education system has taught them that really we're the kind of the scourge of the earth. You know, us, us homo sapien animals are really the ones wiping out other species and we're causing all these environmental problems. And I could see how if your perspective was all we are is animals on a further evolved plane, well, then I could see how you would sort of come to that conclusion, like all the problems that we're supposedly creating as humans, um, and, and the idea that we've got to look out for a brother bear and sister, um, you know, seal or something like that. Uh, you know, but God clearly teaches in his word, no, we're, we, are, we are not animals. We're made in his image, and we're made far differently than the animals. We possess a spirit. We are eternal God makes a very clear distinction between, here between what happens when you take the life of a human and what happens when you take the life of an animal. Um, and again, that's not to say we're to be careless and wasteful. We're not to be like some of the early pioneers of our country who went out and, and shot hundreds of animals just for the fun of it. We're not to do that. That is not what God calls us to do. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 12.10 12, says, a righteous man regards the life of his animal, but tender mercies... But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So it says a righteous man is, is actually caring and cares for creation, cares for animals, it is not just heartless and cruel and wasteful. We're to be wise with God's resources. So again, this is not to condone uh, sort of this uh, killing for sport or being wasteful or, or uh, cruel and unkind. God's word nowhere condones that kind of behavior. We're to be good stewards, but we are to have dominion. And we need to understand the context of that. So number two, civil dominion and rule. We just read about that. There's an interesting prophecy relating to this where it talks about capital punishment and the rule. And, and you've got to remember, he's speaking to the, his chosen people, the line through which G, uh, Jesus would come. And there's a prophecy later on in Genesis that's, I think, worth mentioning in Genesis 49.10. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 talks about the authority of capital punishment, talks about the authority of, um, uh, to be able to uh, make a judgment and then render, render um, discipline or capital punishment. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now we know that even, even, even the Jewish culture pretty much unanimously agree and believe that Shiloh refers to their Messiah. And Shiloh means peace in Hebrew. That's what that word means. It means peace. And we know from Isaiah that Jesus is the prince of what? He's the prince of peace. And this, this, this verse is a prophetic verse talking about Jesus. And it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. And 
To him shall be the obedience of the people. What's interesting to note is we know now that about 20 years or so before Pontius Pilate assumed control of Judea, that there was a procurator that was appointed by Rome, a guy named Caponius, and he was installed there to restore order because the guy before him was just terrible. There was riots all the time. There was civil war all the time. There was unrest. People were constantly uh, uh, getting killed and rioting in the streets. And so this guy, uh, Caponius, was appointed by Rome about 20 years before Pontius Pilate. And during his appointment, one of the first things he did, one of his first actions that he took in setting up some law and order in there, was he took away the right of the Sanhedrin and the right of the Jews to exact capital punishment. He took that right away. That was one of the first things he did. And that was the first time that it had been completely stripped from them, that they had no right to exact that kind of justice on their own people. And when that happened, the priests and the scribes, they all... Uh, wept and, and tore their clothes and wore sackcloth. I mean, it was a major ordeal for them because of this very scripture. They felt like God's promise had just been nullified. They, they thought, well, wait a second, the, the scepter's not... The scepter represents, by the way, historically look throughout scripture and in history, that scepter. You always see that scepter, that kingly scepter, the, the one with authority had the scepter. And that really represented the power of life and death. You know, it's just like um, in... Uh, in uh, the story of Esther, where anyone who came before the king unannounced, what was the punishment? They would be killed unless he did what? He put out a scepter to them, and that granted them that pardon. But it's a symbol of that power. And so this was devastating. When this law was passed uh, about 20 years before Pontius Pilate came on the scene, they thought, what just happened? We thought this promise meant that we would have this literal authority until the Messiah came. Well, it turns out that about 20 years before Pontius Pilate, in this time frame, Jesus was about six or seven years old. This was actually about six to seven A.D. And, and so there's this young boy living in Nazareth, Shiloh himself, the king of peace himself, that had come on the scene. And right during this time, uh, Jesus was a young man, and he had come. Their Messiah had come and had fulfilled this prophecy. And so... It's interesting that this law was passed as Jesus uh, was a young boy. It came about exactly as Scripture declared it would. So let's read on, picking up in Genesis 9, verse 8, reading about God's covenant, His promise. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, And as for me, behold, I will establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, and all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. So note this, this promise, this covenant, isn't just for mankind, it's with all creation, this promise that he's about to make. It is with all creation, not just mankind. It says in verse 11, Thus I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is a sign of the covenant which I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I will set my rainbow, or actually the word here is bow, in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, 
and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh. And so it's pretty repetitive there and very clear. He's making this covenant with, with, with all creation. He's saying that hey, this will be a sign for everyone and everything that I'm not going to destroy the earth in a flood again. And so again, this word here, rainbow, is actually the word bow, and it is, and it is used throughout the Old Testament to literally refer to an archer's bow. And uh, So it's referring to this bow in the sky, but we know obviously it is referring to what we call now a rainbow. And we all know how rainbows are created, right? Basically, if the light is behind you and you're looking towards the mist or the clouds or an area where it's raining, at about 42 degrees is where the light, when it, when it goes through the rain droplets, it bounces off the back and refracts back through the front towards you, and it splits the spectrums of light, and you can see the breakdown of, the, of all the colors of, of the spectrum of light from, from red through, through uh, violet. And it's interesting to note that uh, the, we've determined, or at least the way we've broken it out in what our human eyes can distinguish, seven official colors. That's a memorable number. And it's also interesting that the sign of God's promise is something that he himself identifies with because God himself is light. And Jesus himself said that he is the light of the world. Jesus in, in John chapter 8, verse 12 Says that I am Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You know, interesting, some interesting notes about light. Light travels at approximately 299,792,458 meters per second, or 186,000 miles per second. It's pretty fast. A traveler moving at the speed of light would circumnavigate the equator approximately 7.5 times in one second. So that's pretty fast. So Jesus being the light of the world, if you've ever wondered how fast Jesus can run, now you know. But recently, Adam also was teaching us uh, through Matthew and was talking about how we also are to be salt and light in the world. And the idea is that light reveals things, doesn't it? Light reveals what something truly is. And what's interesting about the nature of light and perceivable colors that we have is that... When we see things, when we look at things, what we're actually seeing when we see color is that where we can tell color is by um, what spectrum of light is not absorbed by an object. And so I'll explain it this way. For instance, if you see a green plant, it appears green because that plant absorbs all the visible colors of the spectrum except the green spectrum. Same thing if you see a red wall. The same thing is, is occurring there. And so it's interesting that your eyes are basically seeing the only wavelength that that object is not absorbing. But light reveals these things uh, based on what, what the object is made of. And so in the same manner, and being salt and light, if we're light of the world, if Jesus is light of the world, he reveals the essence of what, th what truth is, how things really are. And God gave us this promise, and the symbol of that promise is the essence of what he also uses to represent himself. That light, what we're seeing really is light, but we're seeing the essence of the light in the spectrum of the colors. It's just an amazing thing. But it's interesting to think that apparently this was the first time a rainbow was ever seen. So apparently before the flood, 
you know, if they had seen rainbows before the flood, well, then it wouldn't really be anything special. And apparently, after the flood is when the first rainbow was seen. Now again, he gave them this promise, and it's really cool to think about how he set it up, how the reminder of his promise accompanied the very thing that they would fear. Inevitably, their first encounter with rain was not a good one, was it? Not a good experience. And so, let's say a few weeks later, clouds form, the rain starts falling. If God hadn't promised them this, what do you think their first thought would be? A lot of fear. Oh no, is it going to happen again? Should we, what should we do? I mean, can you imagine the kind of fear the next few times that it rained and the, just the, the, the thoughts that would be going through their head? And so the, it's so awesome how God is. He set up that in the very uh, thing that would cause that fear, the very trial that would cause them to, to fear for their lives, at the same moment is when his promise would appear. At the same moment, the reminder of, of what God said he wouldn't do would appear. And I think it's such a cool thing to think of how, really, in the, in the whole chapter of human history after the flood, rain then eventually became known as a blessing, not a, not a scary thing, didn't it? Rain became something you prayed for. Rain became something that brought life rather than bringing death. Rain is necessary for a harvest. And and matter of fact, the lack of rain was many times the result of a curse or punishment. And so rain is something that God redeemed, in a sense, from post-flood. It's something that he redeemed. And I think it's a cool picture of how life is with us. You know, when we enter trials, when we go through difficulty, just like in this instance with rain, God's promises are there and most well seen when we're going through trials. You know what I'm talking about? When you don't, if you're not experiencing a trial, if there's not a fearful thing in your life, it's easy to carry on your merry way without, a, without depending on God, without seeing him working in you or around you. But when you are in the midst of it, that's when his promises become real. That's when they truly work out in your life and you see him deliver on those promises. And that's why we see that his promises go hand in hand with the trial. Now, the sadly... The rainbow in modern society has become a symbol of something else, hasn't it? It's been a bit hijacked. Uh, Satan hijacked the rainbow, and what we know to be a symbol of God's promise and his faithfulness, his covenant with the earth, has now become a symbol of something that is utterly perverse, Uh, a symbol of the um, LGBT pride movement, really. That's their flag. That's their symbol. And it's just like Satan to, to have be such a counterfeit and a liar to take something that represents the promises of God and have it now represent something that undermi- undermines the fundamental institution that he set up of marriage. You know, and, and it really, that came about uh, really just since 1978 when uh, someone thought it'd be a good idea to create this flag to represent diversity. And uh, there's all kinds of theories and stories about how it came about, but I think we as Christians have a bit of a responsibility to not abandon that symbol, you know, to, to, to remember and to share with people what the flag, what, I'm sorry, what the uh, rainbow really represents. Amen? I mean, we have a responsibility to not just go, well, that, you know, we don't, okay, we don't do anything with rainbows anymore. No, the rainbow is God's promise. The rainbow symbolizes God's covenant, his faithfulness. And that's our symbol. That's the symbol he gave to us. That's the symbol uh, that is valuable, that we need to not surrender to the enemy, but we need to hold true to what it means and to what its origins are. We need to share with people what the rainbow really represents. 
Picking up in verse 18, let's read on. It says, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. It's interesting that to note that it's actually mentioned twice here that it's reiterated, Ham is the father of Canaan. It's pointed out more than once. And we know the Canaanites really eventually would come to be the official enemies of Israel. You know, when God was bringing his people into the promised land, what land was it? It was the land of Canaan. And, and so in, inherently, they had to drive the Canaanites out. They had, to, um, they had to completely clear them out and conquer that land again. And so it's interesting that it mentions twice that this whole race of people, this, this, whole, uh, this whole demographic came from Ham. And we're going to find out a little, uh, why here in a minute. But it says in verse 19 that these were the three sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. So it makes it clear Noah's family was the only family to survive the flood, and the rest of the earth was populated through his family. And Noah became a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. And then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. So this is the first mention of wine in Scripture. You know, there's a, there's, a do, there's a principle in hermeneutics or interpretation of Scripture that it's called the principle of first mention. And when you see something first mentioned in Scripture, it's important to take note of what is said about it and what we're supposed to glean from it and compare it with Scripture. It gives us a foundational understanding. First of all, um, in looking at Scripture, we think about, well, it's interesting that this is the first appearance of wine, at least that's spoken about. So you have to wonder, well, before the flood, in the more perfect state of the perfect state of how God created the earth, you wonder: Did fermentation even happen? Was this was this just an accident? Did Noah just was enjoying his grape juice and went, "Whoa, this is good stuff," and kind of had a little too much? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, it seems to appear that he he knew what he was doing, but it's the first time it's mentioned. But we again want to again look at all of Scripture as to what what are we to do with 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 this stuff. Um, in Scripture, we see, first of all, that wine is talked about throughout Scripture, is talked about in the New Testament. Is wine in and of itself bad? Are we as Christians told to abstain from, from, from wine, from any form of it? Well, no, we're not. If we look at Scripture, Timothy is encouraged to use wine for his infirmities in the New Testament. Wine is associated throughout Scripture with joy and with prosperity and all those things. You know, so we're not necessarily told, you know, wine in and of itself is evil, but we are told that being drunk is. Being drunk is a sin. Turns out it's pretty easy to avoid being drunk if you don't drink. So that's kind of naturally goes hand in hand. But uh, is drinking wine a sin? No, absolutely not. And scripture doesn't teach that. But it does teach that we are to exercise great caution. And the first time wine is mentioned, we see that it's abused and it caused great shame. Proverbs 20 verse 1 says, wine is a mocker. And whoever and a strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so God's word, if, what it does teach, if you look at it as a whole, is no, it's not forbidden, but be very, very careful. And quite honestly, you know, uh, it's, not, it's not a bad idea to err on the side of caution. There's a lot of other good things to drink. Um, but can you? Sure, you can. But it, you know, God's word is, has a lot of strong warnings about how wine has been the downfall of many. And we see the first introduction of wine illustrating the danger. And so it's, it's wise to run from temptation. Amen? It's wise to not flirt with danger. And we know that there's danger here. 
Noah got to experience it that firsthand. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with uh, what? The Spirit. That's what we want to be filled with. That's what we want to have too much of, and more than we can get, as much as we can get. That's what, as Christians, we're to pursue. That's what's to be our go-to for comfort. When we're stressed out with life, instead of grabbing the bottle, we grab the Bible. Instead of getting overwhelmed and just going to something that you know, is going to dull our senses, we go to our source of life and truth, the Spirit himself, and we let him overwhelm us with comfort because the Spirit himself is called, as Jesus called him, the what? The comforter. He's the one who reveals truth, and he's the one we're supposed to run to. In this day and age, I know so many people who talk about the end of the day, that's their go-to. They get their glass of wine, and that's how they decompress, and that's their relief. That's not so for the Christian. It's not so for the believer. We have something much better, don't we? We have the Spirit of God. Let's use that resource. So, we see that Noah kind of brought some shame on himself. He did something foolish. And his son, one of his sons did not respond in so good of a manner. Let's read on, verse 22. It says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, hint, hint, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. So he didn't do anything to help the situation. He just, he just you know, pointed and laughed and, and spread his father's shame and disgrace all around, all around camp. Told his brothers all about it. Didn't do anything honorable. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away. And they did not see their father's nakedness. And so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. So, you know, what exactly did Ham do? It appears that he just simply looked at him and then he talked about it and he, and he exposed his father's shame and he responded in a, in a completely uh, ungodly or wicked way to this, to this act. There's others that would, in, that would indicate or believe that, there's those who speculate that he did more than that. Uh, there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that. But the point is, it's contrasted very starkly with what his brothers did. We're given a good example of what the right thing to do would have been, and that's in what his brothers did. 1 Peter 4.8, I think, really epitomizes this. It says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. And we see that uh, Noah's other two sons, that's what they did. They didn't expose their father's shame. They didn't spread it all around uh, you know, the camp at that time. Uh, they went in backwards. They didn't refuse to even look. And they carefully covered him up. And they did the honorable thing. They did what God would have them do. And so because of this, because of what Ham chose to do, we're going to see that he's going to receive some consequences here. Picking up in verse 25, it says, Then Noah said, knowing what his son did, he said, Cursed be Canaan. So apparently at this point in time, Ham already had sons. Canaan has already been born. And again, this is after Noah had started a, he's, he became a farmer, planted a vineyard, vineyard, had enough time to harvest the crops, make wine. So time has gone by. They didn't just get off the ark yesterday. Okay, obviously plenty of time had gone by. Chances are there was a lot of people around at this time. They'd already had children. Several of them had had children. And they had enough time for him to become a farmer, get pretty good at it, make wine. So time had passed. Canaan was already around. And so... The curse is passing to Ham's son. It says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be his servant. 
And may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. And so we see this curse for for the son who did foolishly. Seems like we still can't seem to get away from having that one line of 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 people who are who are wa- not walking with God, who end up being a thorn in the side of the people of God, and there's this constant battle between those who are God's chosen people or those who serve God, and those who rebel and those who are not honoring God, those who are contrary to those who Satan uses to try and undermine, undermine or thwart God's plan. And it's interesting that just as Noah's son dishonored him, the curse passed to to Ham's son. And it went on through his line because of this. And it obviously was indicative of what his character was. It was indicative of who he was as a person. This wasn't just a one-time act and then the curse. It was obviously Ham uh, had set this precedent as to what kind of person he was. But thus we have the conclusion of this first section of this is now life. This is the start of life after the flood. And we see... First of all, some setup for what God is commanding the people to do, to go out and to establish rule and stewardship over his creation, to set up some law and order, to set up some, some rules and regulations here we see. We see that God prom- makes some promises, some covenants with his people, and, and sets the stage for what the rest of this redemption plan is going to look like. And, and lastly, we see that sin, sin, unfortunately, is still alive and well and is still kicking, and we're given that stark reminder that we're still, we still haven't been set free from that. And especially at this point in time, the Redeemer hadn't come, you know, and true forgiveness and true freedom from sin and shame and the consequences of it hadn't come yet. And so in conclusion, I want to leave you with a passage from Second Peter 1, starting in verse 2, if you want to join me there. Second Peter 1, starting in verse 2, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. We've got to hold on to those promises of God. They are faithful and true. That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would be fruitful. Lord, that we would go out into this world on a mission, Lord, to, to take dominion, as your word says, Lord, to, to um, just establish uh, the precedent that you are the creator of all things and that you have appointed us as stewards in honor of you. Lord, that we would do as you intended us to do and that we would represent you well for however long we have left. I pray that as your word says here, Lord, that we would love one another and that that love would cover sin, Lord, that we would, that we would follow your word and how we're to live with one another. And Lord, I pray that in doing so, we would be a bright light to this world, that your promises would be declared through our very lives, 
that we would be that symbol of your promises and your covenants and of, of your faithfulness to this world, to this dark world that needs to know that you're not just the source of judgment, but that you are a loving God and that it's not your will that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And So Lord, we, we just uh, commit this night to you and we pray that your word would take effect and take hold in our lives, that we'd go out a little different than we came in. In Jesus' name, amen.